Thanks, Liz. Please do keep your Bibles up. Back open there at uh, Genesis chapter 12. I want to start by showing you a picture. Hopefully it's going to come up on this screen, these screens. There it is. Who was this person? His name was James Tyndall. He was born in Lancaster in June 1913. He married Lillian Malone from Manchester. He was a little guy, five foot three and a half, and he weighed 126 pounds. I could have eaten him for lunch. He was a horse driver by trade. He fought for his country in World War II as an anti-tank gunner. He settled in Manchester and fathered two sons, and then he died. His name was James Tyndall. He was my grandfather. These are his soldier papers. I never met him. He left no legacy. I don't know where he's buried. Almost nothing remains to mark the fact that he walked this earth. He lived, he loved, he is no more. This life all about. Your life. Do you ever think that? When the time comes, as it has this week for Her Majesty, as it has this morning for Paul Connolly, and you depart from this earth, how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered as someone who was really good at email? What I'm getting at is, are you part of anything bigger than yourself? Part of anything that really matters, that is enduring, do you want your life to count? Now today we're starting a series on the life of Abraham, and we're looking today at the turning point in his life. He began in similar obscurity to my grandfather, but then something extraordinary happened. God, the living God, broke into his life. God called him, and he obeyed and went. And through Abraham's obedient faith, the world was blessed. The whole world was blessed and is continuing to be blessed. Now, you may have noticed in our reading that his name actually originally was Abram, but it was changed to Abraham later. And now more than half of the world's population... Think about this. How many people in the world? More than seven billion. More than half of the world's population call Abraham the father of faith. Christians, Muslims, and Jews all view Abraham as the father of faith. Abraham heard the call of God, and he obeyed and went, and he blessed the world. And here's the, the big point today. He was blessed in order to be a blessing. God blessed him, he gave him all sorts of things, promises, but it was in order that he would be a blessing to others. And uh, as, we, as you know, our text today is Genesis 12. The author and friend of mine, Justin Mote, who sadly uh, passed away earlier this year, Justin used to say, the Bible can be divided into two halves. The first half is Genesis chapter 1 to 11, and the second half is the rest. <laughs> you think, gosh, that's two funny halves. But if you think about it, it's quite a statement. What has already occurred in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is fairly substantial. In the first two pages alone, we find the creation of the entire universe. The sun, 
the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the Milky Way, all of that is spoken into being. And God creates this world in all its grandeur and beauty. And we find in the first part of the Bible that it's all made by a good God who showered his love upon us. He made human beings in his own likeness and image to rule the world and steward it, cultivate it, and develop it. And all they had to do was enjoy all the gifts God had given them and obey his word. But that last sentence, that last clause, was the one thing they didn't do. They doubted God's goodness. They rebelled. They committed high treason. Uh, they, they sinned. And so we were cut off from the life of God. That's what we find in chapter 3 of Genesis. We were cut off as a, as a race. And I do believe there's only one human race from the life of God. And so we live outside the gates of Eden. We live, love, and die without a trace. Genesis 3 depicts the tragic fall of humanity from innocence to paradise lost. And what Genesis 3 shows us is, it could be summed up in one word, which is alienation. Alienation, we are alienated in four ways. Firstly, psychologically, God's curse lies on the entire created order because of sin, and we are psychologically alienated within ourselves. We are not at peace within ourselves, in our own hearts and inner consciousness. We experience guilt, anxiety, shame, fear. We can't trust. We're worried. We feel like we're imposters. Psychologically, we're all at sea. Secondly, we are socially alienated. Because we're alienated from God, that's the vertical axis, we're also alienated socially, horizontally from one another. There is conflict, trouble, strife, pain, hurt, even in the closest human relationships. Psychologically, socially, we're also physically alienated in this world. We also experience physical degradation. I was chewing some crisps last night. Katsu curry flavoured crisps. Whoever would have thought there would be such a thing? And I felt something hard, much harder than a crisp. It was only small. I kind of went, oh, oh, what's that? And I realised it's probably a bit of tooth. You know, bits of us are always falling off, aren't they? <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> stop, stop. We experience physical degeneration. Now, you YPF, young adults, teenagers, you don't know you're born. Let me tell you, it won't be long. It won't be long. In fact, I think you start dying when you're about 21, don't you? <laughs> Just a cheerful thought for Sunday. We experience painful toil, sorrow. Aches and pains, physical degeneration, and then death. In fact, Genesis says that even the ground itself is cursed. So work is, work is not the pleasurable, fulfilling thing it should be. Our work can be either grinding boredom or very interesting but stressful, but it's seldom what we would hope it would be. And we're alienated in the creation. The world isn't what it should be. It's out of joint. Tsunamis. And that's not the Newcastle football supporters, right? It's a, it's a big storm. Tsunamis, earthquakes, drought, famine, 
plagues, ah, the whole thing, that we're physically alienated. And fourthly, and probably fundamentally, we are spiritually alienated. Uh, the root cause of all our human problems is actually our separation from God and God's wrath, his righteous anger that rests upon us. The reason for all the misery ultimately is that we are alienated from God. We are not reconciled with him. We are at enmity. And so since the Garden of Eden, our world is filled with suffering and disease, poverty, racism, cancer, natural disasters, war, aging, death, it all stems from the right wrath of God on the world. The world is out of joint and we need to be rescued. And that's just the first three chapters of Genesis. Ready for the next few? Genesis 4 to 11 gets even more ugly. It describes life outside the garden and it ain't pretty. The story begins with Cain and Abel, the first murder by a brother, a jealous brother who killed Abel. There's a catastrophic flood that wipes out most of the population. Even when they're restored, human beings continue in violence and wickedness. It's a story of a spiral into a heart of darkness. And it hits a new low in Genesis chapter 11. This chapter describes the Tower of Babel. People unite in an effort to oppose the rule of God over their lives. They build a tower to exalt their own name. Let us make our name great and we will be like gods. So God scatters them across the whole earth before they can do themselves any more damage. And they are conflicted by the great separation of language. How can we get on when we can't understand each other? You see how far we've fallen by chapter 11 of Genesis? By the time we've reached the negative climax of Babel, we're wondering, aren't we? What is God going to do about this? How is God going to respond to the blight on his good creation? And here is the answer, point number one. God called Abram. Is it coming up on the screen? Don't know. <laughs> God called Abram. God called Abram. The great creator God is now making his move to restore the world, to redeem lost humanity, to reconcile all things to himself. And this is it. Ready for it? He called Abraham. Shall we have a look at this guy? Uh, LinkedIn is an online platform to connect professionals. People put their CV, their career history on it, on LinkedIn. Some of you are on it, I know, because you're my friends. And uh, you can put your resume on there. Here is Abraham's CV. He is 75 years old. That's in verse 4. He was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Now, I don't want to insult anyone here who is 75 or over. But it's not normally considered the prime of life, is it, friends? <laughs> it's normally considered retirement age. Time to put your feet up and enjoy life and don't worry too much. Leave the work to the younger ones. But here he is. God's, God's big move is a 75-year-old. Secondly, he has no children. He has no children, and as uh, Liz read, in chapter 11, verse 30, Sarai, his wife, was childless because she was not able to conceive. Uh, so he's got no children and, and his wife is barren, and that can be, a, a fertility can be a, a real heartache in every generation. But in that time, it was quite significant. It was a real 
it was really considered almost like a curse because you had no name. You had no descendants to carry on his name. So he is a nobody in that time. He's a 75-year-old nobody. And he was an idolater. He was probably a moon worshipper. Joshua 24, verse 2 shares that he was called and he worshipped false gods. So he morally, uh, in the Bible's terms, he has nothing to commend him. He's not some outstanding specimen. And guess what? He has already failed. This is really important for us to grasp. And you, if you've got the church Bible there, you will notice in chapter 12, verse 1, a very important little word in our translation that I'm glad is in there. It says, the Lord had said to Abram. Look back to chapter 11 again. Terah, as his father, uh, uh, took a, the family, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans. They're from Ur of the Chaldeans. You just imagine how this town was named, can't you? Town planning meeting, local councillors present. What are we going to call the town? Uh, that'll do. Ur of the Chaldeans. They've been called to go. I love my wife. She gets my humor. But they didn't carry on. When they came to Haran, they settled there. And Acts chapter 7, you don't have to look this up. I'll look it up. Acts chapter 7 actually reveals a bit more of this. It says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans. But you know what? He didn't, he didn't actually go all the way. He kind of got part way and then stopped. So Abraham has already failed. Just trying to give you the picture here. God's big answer to the problems of, the, of Genesis 1 to 11 is calling Abraham. And this is the kind of person we're dealing with. 75-year-old, no-name, idol worshipper who's already blown it. This is a friend of mine, Scott Haifman, brilliant Bible teacher and scholar and wonderful man. He says, when God speaks again, calling Abraham to leave Haran and go to Canaan, it is yet another act of undeserved mercy as a result of God's sovereign choice. Because although God had appeared earlier to Abram while he's still in Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia and called him to go to Canaan, Abram had stopped halfway to the promised land. In his mercy, God therefore steps in once again to bring Abram all the way to the promised land. Why this mercy to Abram? The Bible gives no indication of any reason whatsoever in Abraham's own life why God chose him over someone else. And that is precisely the point. Christian friend, why did God choose you? There's no reason in yourself. He just set his love upon you. God did not reveal himself to Abraham because of who Abraham was, but in spite of who he was. That is a comfort to us, isn't it? God didn't choose you because you were great and now he's getting second thoughts and cold feet because actually you're not that great. God knew you all along. He called you, committed himself to you, chose you and will take you to the end. He will finish the work he has begun. So to conclude, Abraham is an obscure no-name, a person of zero fame and influence, not known for great strength, ability or courage. His life is nearly over and he has no children to carry on his line. And it's this guy 
that gets a promise from God, trusts and obeys, gets up and goes, and the whole world is blessed through him because one of his descendants was Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. God kept his promise, even though Abraham himself died, still living in hope and still living in a tent and with only a toehold on the promised land, God had called him and he would keep his promise. And I think we can see where the stress lies in the sentence. God called Abram. See, the Bible at the end of the day isn't really about us. We try and think about how it's all about me. It's not, it's all about God. How great he is, how faithful, how kind, and how he keeps his promises. There's nothing in Abram himself that merits the call. Nothing at all. He doesn't even obey fully the first time. It's simply an act of the grace of God who chooses people, sets his great love upon them, and pursues them and leads them like stubborn mules all the way. My Saviour leads me into his kingdom. And look, will you, in chapter 12, at the seven promises that God gives this man. This is so important. If you've got your own Bible, you should underline it and highlight it in in a bright colour. This is one of the great passages of the whole scriptures. Uh, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Here are the promises. One, I will make you into a great nation. Two, I will bless you. Three, I will make your name great. Four, you will be a blessing. Five, I will bless those who bless you. Six, whoever curses you, I will curse. Seven, and most majestic, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Wow. So Abram went. Scholars have, have noticed that the word curse shows up five times in that first part of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 11, five curses. And here in this promise to Abraham, we have five blessings. The word bless shows up five times. This is the reverse of the curse. God is turning history around. This is God's counterattack against the evil that spoils his creation. By the end of the Tower of Babel affair, human beings are scattered far and wide and hopelessly conflicting. But in Abraham, every, actually it says, every family on earth will be blessed through this one man, and his descendants. But doesn't it look weak and small? This is how God works, through things that look weak and failed and pathetic. This is God's plan. He makes the moves. He calls. He sustains. He is faithful. All Abraham has to do is trust. Believe God's promise that he will become a great nation even though it looks absolutely impossible. And he has to get up and go. See, on Abraham's side, this call is a call to live by faith on the promises of God, to bet his life on God's word. It is a call, a promise of an incredible future, but it does mean a less comfortable life here and now, doesn't it? It means taking risks. It means sacrifice. He will have to leave the comforts of his home. He will have to choose a way of life that's alien to his culture's idea of the good life. He will have to base those major decisions on the call of God and God's promises, which, to be blunt, looks ridiculous by any standard. 
And friends, it is the same for you. Because God calls Ab- called Abraham, that's my first point. Second point, God calls you. That might be the reason you're here this morning. God calls you. He calls you to trust Jesus Christ and get up and follow him wherever he leads. This is known as becoming a disciple. Disciple means a lifelong learner. It doesn't mean just passively accepting some information and data about Jesus, some ideas. It doesn't mean just that. It means basing your whole life on the promises and the words of Jesus, everything, betting your life on him. God calls you to follow Jesus Christ and be a disciple, and that does go against what your culture holds dear, by the way. Goes against what our culture holds up as a vision of the good life, because being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is about service, as we've thought about with the Queen. And that to serve other people means to sacrifice for them, doesn't it? You're not doing it for yourself. Listen to Pastor John Stark from New York City. Christianity is not a means to human flourishing. In fact, Christianity instructs us to die to self, to consider others more important, to turn the cheek, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, to enter into weeping and sadness with other people. This, of course, creates a conflict with the modern self. Because the modern self is all about you protecting yourself from hurt and pain from other people and fulfilling yourself and who you want to be. Christianity is calling you to a vision that is absolutely opposite to the vision our culture says is the good life. Now, ironically, it's also to, to follow Jesus is the most fulfilled life. There's, a, there's an irony, there's a paradox in here. But you're not doing it to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Why would you do that? Because of God's call and promise. And to the world around it looks ridiculous. I'm just thinking of a few people who could be in this room. To a, a college, a school, school student or a college student who faces ridicule for their Christian faith. Uh, you tell someone you're a Christian and the mood changes. Yeah, it feels awkward. Uh, you might find that you're outside of certain groups. You might find you're gossiped about. People will want to know, well, why don't you? Why aren't you? Well, you're waiting to, to, to get married before you have sex. What? They think you're absolutely weird. So to build your life on Jesus Christ as a school student or a college student means hearing the call and obeying. What about the single person who resolves they will wait for a Christian spouse because Jesus comes first and is number one? What does the culture think of that? What about the person who gives away eye-popping amounts of money to gospel work and has less for themselves? What does the culture think about that? Why would you do that? You only do that if you believe in the promise of God. One of the wealthiest Christian businessmen in this country, multi-millionaire, decided some years ago he would live on 50,000 pounds a year 
for his family budget so that he could give away everything else. What about people who choose to invest their lives in sharing the gospel overseas or even here with unreached people at great personal cost? What what does the culture say to them? God calls you to the world around it makes no sense. But to the person who hears the call and promise of God, everything has now changed. He's my king. Just think of Abraham once more. Did God actually keep his promises? Number one, the great nation. Yes, he did. Not only the miracle baby Isaac, but the nation of Israel. And the spiritual descendants of Abraham are more numerous than the sand on the seashore. There are over two billion Christian adherents in the world right now. God kept his promise. That's a great nation. The international church of Jesus Christ. What about the blessing? What does that mean? I'll bless you. We say it to people when they sneeze. At creation, God blessed Adam and Eve. He gave them a fruitful place. He, gave them, he made them fertile. And he made them rulers over creation. And now God is creating a new people with Abraham. And he promises the same three things. And he did take him to a fruitful place, made him fertile and made him ruler there. A great name. This is a reversal of what happened at Babel. Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves. God tears it down. And with Abraham, he says, I will give you a great name. And now Abraham is honored by over half of the planet as the father of faith. Be a blessing. He's a blessing we'll find when he goes to other places. Bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. Abraham enjoyed the protection of God in remarkable ways. And finally, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yes, because Abraham's greatest descendant, Jesus Christ, blesses the whole world. And the New Testament begins with these words, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So why did God bless Abraham so much? Verse 3 so that he could be a blessing. Every family on earth. So my final point is, we are blessed to be a blessing. God called Abraham, God calls you, we are blessed to be a blessing, friends. God never helps us, gives to us, provides for us, loves us, cares for us, just for our own sake. He does it so that we can bless others. It's the story of the whole Bible. So we don't think that this is just for the special people, talented people, exceptional ones, clever ones, the ones who look really godly. This is for all of us here. Remember how Abram began, an unexceptional, ordinary person like my grandfather. But God broke into his life. And God, if God has broken into your life, friends, he's done it in order to bless you, and now he's sending you to bless the world. I don't know how you think of Sunday morning. Sunday morning is, is, is fundamentally important in our life as a church. So I encourage people to be at church on Sunday morning for your own good. Because we come in here to be blessed in order to be thrown out all around the city, in our homes, our neighborhood, our workplace, our family, in order that we can bless others. Hundreds of us being sent out this week. What an exciting thought. How much blessing can be showered on the people around because of you? 
Now, you might not have to get up and go to a far country, although some of you might, but there is a call that comes to every single Christian, man, woman, and child, and it's this, the call to make disciples. This is how we're tying what happens with Abraham way back to over 2,000 years before Jesus to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, his last words uh, on earth before his ascension, as Liz read for us earlier. All authority in heaven and on earth, that's complete authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. There's one command in that sentence, and it's the command to make disciples, to make other people join and become a lifelong learner from Jesus. That is the call of all of us, that we go and help make disciples. That's how you bless other people. That is how God actually fulfills his promise to bless every family on earth, is through the church making disciples. It's through us. And as we stand here, we sit here, God is still working out that promise today. All families on earth have not had the opportunity to hear the good news. We are in a generation now with unprecedented opportunities for communications and for travel and for Bible translation and for language learning and for witness. Have you been blessed? Have you experienced the love and kindness of Jesus Christ? Have you known his, his forgiveness and grace to you? Have you enjoyed the, ble- the benefits of being part of his family, the church? Have you heard his promise and known his commitment to you? Then wouldn't it be great for other people to experience that too? As we sit here, can you think of someone right now who you could be a blessing to this week? Through your acts of service, through your words of grace, you could just walk across the room and serve that person or speak a word of grace from the gospel to them. Where will you be this time tomorrow? And how can we be a blessing? So, have a moment of reflection, then we'll pray. Lord, who are we to come into your presence, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the mighty one, the ancient of days. Yet you bid us welcome and invite us. You want to hear our prayers. Lord, lay on our hearts now somebody this week that we can really bless. Give us the humility to see where we can do acts of service. 
Give us the courage to know when we can speak words of grace. We are your servants, Lord. We are your instruments in your hands. We ask that you'd use us this week to bless every family on earth. Amen.